Well, good morning again. Let me take this mask off. I am glad to be with you this morning um, as we're continuing our series. I'm very grateful that God has um, given me an opportunity to share his word. Um, Again, if you haven't filled out that card, you're going to hear me hound you about this. I'd love to get that back from you. Now, we're going to continue our series. um, And, you know, there's a lot of things in the news about uh, viruses and vaccines and things like that. And COVID-19 has been a horrendous um, situation for so many people. So many people have suffered around the world. And yet we forget that sometimes, uh, uh, well, in history, if you look throughout history, there are things that come along, things like plagues and the like. And it wasn't so long ago that there was, we'll call it a plague called uh, polio. In fact, uh, before COVID, there was polio. If you look up on the screen, you'll see that these are people who had contracted polio and they were put in a machine called an iron lung to breathe for them. This was before uh, we had more modern equipment. Now, these iron lungs would actually do the breathing for the person. Now, some of you know about polio. Uh, My dad had a scar on his arm, I think, from an injection. Uh, But polio devastated a good chunk of the world, and thank God now it's essentially eradicated. But um, I want to tell you a story about a guy named Paul Alexander. Now, he contracted polio in 1952 at the age of six. The disease left him paralyzed from the neck down, and he never recovered from that. I mean, he was placed in an iron lung. It kind of looks like a uh, tubular coffin. Could you imagine being put in this? And he has remained in this tube paralyzed for more than half a century. Can you imagine that? I mean, but his confinement has not bound him, strangely enough. He graduated high school as a straight-A student. Uh, He paints. Take a look at this. Here's a picture of him as a young boy painting with his mouth. And here's a caregiver with him, uh, you know, adjusting his machine and and making sure it's up uh, and running. But he earned a law degree. He went to law school. (laughs) And he even published a book last year called Three Minutes for a Dog, My Life in an Iron Lung. I mean, can you imagine writing a book from being in there? Now, if he comes out of this machine, he dies. He spent his whole life confined to this tube. But Paul Alexander is unstoppable. Despite his confinement, he is unchained. Take a look at it. He's kind of smiling in this next image. I mean, He lives his life like this. You would think he would be bound and unable to do anything, yet he achieves things. His writings are being read around the world. He is unstoppable. He is unchained. And, you know, there was another Paul with a similar attitude. He wrote many books, including the letter we're reading today written to Timothy. And he did this while chained to a Roman soldier in a a really a horrendous setting. Paul refused to be bound, and more than that, he declared that the good news, that is the gospel, is unbound. The gospel is unchained. Jesus gave Paul a message and a mission, 
And Paul determined in his heart to proclaim it and to entrust it to Timothy, no matter the cost. He didn't care. Like Timothy, though, we, you and I, we've been entrusted with this good news. God charges us, each of us, his people, with a mission, should you choose to accept it, and a message that proclaimed that Jesus is the vindicated Lord of all the earth. Jesus, because he was resurrected, is vindicated as the Lord of the universe. This message invites persecution and suffering, hardships, and Christians must faithfully endure without violating the rules of the missions. You know, most missions come with rules. But take heart, faithfulness to the mission brings us reward from the faithful God who empowers his people to proclaim it. If it's God's will, it's God's bill. God will empower you to live this message out to complete the mission. But the question is, is, are we availing ourselves of this power? Are we following the instructions of God's word so that we can faithfully transmit the message to others and to the next generation? It's a great question. Well, if you'll stand just for a moment, we're going to open our Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 113. We're going to stand just to honor God's word. And let's take a careful look at what its instructions are telling us. It begins... Verse 1, you then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses. Greek word, martyros, martyrs. <laughs> and trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Verse 3, join with me in suffering like a good soldier for, of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. There are rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. Reflect on what I am saying for this the Lord, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. It continues, verse 8. Keep your attention on Christ Jesus as risen from the dead and descended from David. This is my gospel for which I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But God's word is not chained, Paul says. Verse 10. Therefore, I endure everything. For the sake of the elect, that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now, here is a trustworthy saying. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Then it goes on to in verse Uh, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Amen? You can be seated. Father, I pray that by the power of your spirit that you would illuminate your word, God. That you would give us practical instructions on how to live out the Christian life. Lord, I pray that... These words not be my words, but yours. Empower them and and do them with your presence, your spirit, so that they would be life to those who hear them and receive them, God. 
Lord, help us to be not only hearers of your word, but doers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, these verses contain five imperatives. Uh, and they're given in the span of 13 verses, five imperatives. Now, imperatives, if you're wondering what that is, these are just commands. They're instructions, really. Paul gives Timothy and us, by extension, practical instructions for living out the Christian life. Commands that if you follow them, well, they will enable us to successfully convey the message and complete the mission we've been entrusted with. Um, And more than that, these commands can be transformed into kind of questions that help us assess our Christian life. And that's what we're going to look at today because a lot of people want to know not only how to walk out the Christian life, but they want to know how can I really know that I'm doing this correctly. They want to be able to assess what they're doing. So let's take a look at each imperative in turn. The first one is this, be strong in grace. Notice verse 1, it says, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, one of the first things we need to ask ourselves is this, are we too self-reliant? Where am I too self-reliant? You see, when Paul uses this word grace, he doesn't mean, as we've mentioned before, merely unmerited favor. What he means here is God's empowering presence. Grace is God's empowering ability to live out the Christian life. So this is something that comes from God, something from without us, not from within us, so to speak. I mean, it's the work of the Holy Spirit in us. But it's not our own strength. So we should ask ourselves the question, where am I too self-reliant? Are we relying on our money, our education, our intelligence, maybe our physical attributes? I mean, are we uh, trusting on our own talents and our own resources? Or are we relying on God's grace? This is very important, friends. Because we live in an area where, well, it's an island replete with resources. It's very easy to turn to our own strength rather than rely on God's power, on God's grace. Are you relying on God's empowering presence? I mean, is God's grace the first thing you reach for? Or is it your wallet, your checkbook, your debit card, your smartphone? Is it Google? You know, what is it? I mean, God has given us all the resources we need through the presence of his Holy Spirit, through grace. We need to tap into that and to begin to trust in grace rather than our own abilities. But like Timothy, we're commanded to be strong in grace. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And by the way, this grace is Part and parcel to being in Christ. Paul often uses this phrase, in Christ. It's an in Christ reality. These blessings come as a result of being in Christ. So one, maybe the first question to ask is, am I in Christ? And then you can tap into the grace of God. We need to be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, not relying on our own abilities. So it's a good question to ask yourself today. Where am I relying too much On my own abilities. Where am I too self-reliant? The second thing is to entrust to reliable people. Notice what it says. It says, and the things you have heard me say, the teachings Paul has given, in the presence of many witnesses, those martyrs, entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Who am I trusting? This is a great question. Some trust in horses, others in chariots, 
But as for me, I'm going to trust in the name of the Lord my God. Are you trusting in Jesus? Are you trusting in the right people? Now, you see, in the ancient world, if you traveled and people didn't have cars, you wouldn't carry your possessions with you. Let's suppose you'd manage to you know, save a little bit of money, a little gold or whatever. Instead, you would entrust those, posi- those possessions to the care of somebody you trusted, someone reliable, someone who was, had impeccable character. Because as you travel from one city to the other in the ancient world, there were robbers, there were thieves, and no one wanted to be robbed and all of their worldly possessions taken. It was a very poor agricultural society. People rarely had more than a day's worth of provisions. So the last thing you want is to be robbed of everything that you have. So what did you do? You chose somebody who was a reliable person to entrust them with this treasure of yours. You see, we don't leave our valuables with just anyone, do we? You don't just give anyone the key to your car or your house. No, we entrust them to reliable people. Paul entrusted the gospel to Timothy. And by the way, God's entrusting us with that gospel. Now he calls on Timothy to do the same. Paul wants to see the gospel multiplied and passed on to people who can convey the message reliably. And this should cause us to ask the question, who am I trusting? Who are you trusting? Are you trusting in people who are reliable, people of godly character? Now, by the way, this phrase, reliable people, is probably a reference to elders. Remember, uh, Paul's letters to Timothy have, and this is where we get most of our information about what an elder is. So it likely refers to elders, individuals who possess unassailable character and are competent to teach. Now, if you're interested in looking what that, the, that list is, says, 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2 and Titus 1, 9 gives a description of character traits for elders. Elders, really, the main thing is their character and then their competence in teaching, but primarily it's a character issue. So God chooses to work through a plurality of leaders, that is elders, in order to ensure his message and mission are carried out appropriately. And by the way, Lindbrook Baptist Church's elders have uh, distributed a really valuable survey. This is it. You've heard people talk about it, just like I talked about this card earlier. I want you to, I need your help. Can you help me? Can you fill this out if you haven't already and, and get this back to uh, our leaders? Uh, the, you could, they, they've got physical copies, but you can actually, if you'll see, look on here, you can go to surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash Lindbrook New York and fill the survey out online. It's going to take a few minutes, I know. Uh, and people, I know your time is valuable, but could you do this? There's a reason why we're doing it. Why is this important? Well, we're partnering with a group to kind of give a uh, yearly physical to the church. You know, people go in every year. You're supposed to. I've been kind of bad. But you, 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 need, you go in each year for a physical. Why? Well, the reason that you do this is because the doctor wants to make think, sure that things are running properly, that you're healthy. Well, this is what we're going through at Lindbrook right now. You're, we're at a time in our a season in our church's history where we're looking forward. We want to have a good, solid vision, but we want to make sure that the church is as healthy as possible. So this is important. I'm asking each one of you, if you haven't filled this out already, either go online and do it. Or take the time, fill it out. I put pins in every pew. 
You know, you can take that pen home with you. I give you permission. Take the pen, take the survey, get it filled out and get it back. But God uses elders and the elders have distributed these surveys. So let's get this back. We want to ensure that we have the healthiest church possible and move forward with a clear vision. It's imperative that each of you fill out the survey and get back with it because you've been entrusted with a valuable resource. You just don't want to leave it with anyone. Your your vote, your, your opinion, your ideas, they count. Make them count. Take the time to fill this out. Now, I know this is going to feel like suffering to some of you. I hate filling out surveys. Uh, but this actually brings us to our third imperative. Notice what it says. Join in suffering. Uh, join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, the truth is, filling out a survey isn't real suffering. I mean, we've got it good. Paul is inviting Timothy to join him in suffering. Paul's writing from a prison, chained to a Roman guard. And uh, Timothy and Paul are both living in a time and place where if you are a Christian, Nero's, he's the king of the land. It's persecution, real persecution. We, we've got first world problems. You know, my biggest problem most of the time is deciding where I want to eat, not if I can eat. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? We've got so many choices and so many resources. But these guys are living in a place where they're severely persecuted. Surveys don't amount to real suffering, but you need to fill it out. Uh, but, and we don't suffer like people in China, Christians there, or Saudi Arabia, people in Islamic countries, or North Korea. I mean, we need to ask ourselves, really... When Paul says, join me, be a co-sufferer with me, what am I willing to give up for my faith? Have you ever asked yourself that? I mean, in our first world situation, and our first world problems, what am I really willing to give up for my faith? Now, what might that look like for us? Well, it might just be, is God prompting you to share your time or resources? Maybe to mentor somebody. Maybe to show up on a Sunday and volunteer for children's ministry or work with the kids. Maybe he's putting it on your heart to, uh, to sing, to come up and be part of the praise team. We want to enlist every one of you to see you flourish in the gifts God's given you in your ministry. So if that's you, maybe God's moving on your heart. I mean, give up a little bit of your time. Give up a little bit of your resources. It's going to pay dividends, but we don't do it for that. You know, I have a, my youngest sister last October was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And in January, she had a tumor the size of a lime removed. And there, there are still some residual cancer cells, so she went through radiation, and she's still doing chemotherapy. All of her hair has fallen out. She lives in Indiana primarily. She moved up here with me, had the surgery. Uh, we, I mean, God has done wonderful things, I mean, really preserving her. But she has a 3-year-old, a 10-year-old, and two much older children back in Indiana, so she went back to visit them. Today she arrived on a bus in uh, Chinatown. But here's the problem. I couldn't pick her up. Do you know why? Well, because I'm here. But, and I'm glad to be here. I think this is what God wants. But here's what I want to tell you. I have a friend named Donna who is a godly woman. And I mentioned that this was going to be a situation. She said, let me go get her. Here's somebody who's willing to leave Glen Cove, Long Island, drive to Canal Street, pick up my sister and bring her back. And she did. And she fed her and made sure she's well hydrated. Now, why did she do this? 
you don't do these things, join, when it says join me in suffering, you don't do it out of a sense of guilt. We do these things because out of an overflow of our love for Jesus. Donna wasn't begrudgingly offering to do this or let me take one for the team. What she was saying is, I want to do this. You know, have you ever been so filled with the love of Christ? Have you ever encountered, hasn't Jesus done some things for us that just makes us want to do something? Give up a little of our time, our resources. She didn't ask for anything. She just took off and picked up my sister, who's back at my house waiting for me now. And this, again, is out of an overflowing love of our Savior that we serve. And I want to ask you the question, what are you willing to give up? What are you willing to share of your life out of love for our Savior? Right? What will we give up for our faith? Because I trust in a Savior who loved me so much that he died on a cross while I was yet a sinner. I love him, and I want that love to overflow and get everybody else covered with this love. So think about it. What is your love for Jesus prompting you to share or to do? Paul immediately moves from information to inspiration by shifting to some proverbial images or metaphors that capture the imagination and inspire people to reflect on familiar scenarios. Now, this leads to our fourth imperative, reflect. It says, reflect on what I am saying, for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Now, Paul, Paul has a way of capturing our imagination. He just doesn't give information. He kind of drew some pictures with some familiar things like uh, a, a soldier and an uh, athlete and a, and a farmer. But you have to reflect on these things. Paul instructs Timothy to reflect on what he's been taught. And the metaphor Paul uses requires reflection. I mean, it doesn't immediately make sense. If you grow up in an agrarian society, some of these things will make a little more sense, or maybe a military society. But you need to to reflect on this. We should ask ourselves, when am I contemplating what I've been taught? Because it's very easy, friends, for you to hear a message in the pews and walk out the door and forget everything. It's very easy. I do it all the time. And I'm a pastor. You can do it. Uh, don't, don't let that be you. Reflect on these things. Meditate on these things. Get this stuff uh, ingrained. Ponder these questions. And you need to think about, when can you do this? Set some time aside. Take a walk. Go fishing with your family. Go out into nature. Talk about the things that you've been taught. It's important that we reflect on these things. You know, the Hebrew idea of this is to kind of um, mutter it under your breath out loud, you know, like in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was, was God. You, know? you, you kind of, it's having an, a conversation almost out loud. Reflect on the things you've been taught. Now, what did Paul taught him? Well, it was a lot of things, he, a lot of things to ponder. Uh, we must ponder and meditate on the gospel and the teachings of God's words. But when are we doing this? Well, Paul uses these metaphors and uh, to inspire Timothy to take action. Let's take a look at each one of the metaphors Paul uses in verses 4 through 6. Well, in verse 3, he points to the profile of a good soldier. And he says this, join me in suffering. Uh, verse 4 he says, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs. Okay, are you going to be a good soldier? Now, what, what does Paul have in mind here about being entangled in uh, civilian affairs? If you signed up for the military with the Romans, while you were serving, you couldn't marry. There was no married life. 
and your singular goal in life was to please your enlisting officer. That is to say, the person who enlisted you, or your commanding officer. And who is the commanding officer for Christians? Jesus. It's singular devotion to pleasing him. They possessed single-minded devotion, these soldiers. They did not get entangled with civilian affairs. Uh, They didn't marry. There was no conflict of interest. All of their devotion was focused on Jesus and his gospel. Paul uses this metaphor to inspire Timothy. And then in verse 5, Paul tells Timothy that like a victorious athlete, uh, Timothy must train and play by the rules. Now, we're in Olympic season. It's a little off kilter um, compared to what it used to be. But we should know this. Athletes have to play by the rules. You hear all the time people getting disqualified for cheating or doping and things like that. And recently, we've heard of Simone Biles. She's probably the greatest female gymnast to ever live. And she had a rough go at it in Tokyo. She is, without a doubt, the best gymnast living. And what happened to her? She... um, she had this kind of anxiety that gymnasts develop. Sometimes when they're turning, they lose where they are in the air, and it's kind of scary. So she pulled out of this. But I want you to think about what this woman has given up. She spends years and years of her life, hours and hours of practice. Why? For just a few seconds, just a few minutes. And this is what Paul means when he says that we should play by the rules, according to the rules. It's not just not breaking rules. The rules for an Olympic Olympian, and actually this is probably an, uh, a reference to Olympic Games that Paul's using, not our modern Olympics, but the Olympics back then. You have to train for something. Do you know that? If you're a Christian, there is training required, spiritual disciplines required. Read your word. When was the last time you read the scriptures? memorized some verses, got down and prayed. There's kind of a kind of discipline that we have to um, uh, take on as Christians. And you know what? We are, I would encourage you, if you haven't done it, start memorizing Scripture. Read your Bible. Are you praying regularly? I mean, are you cultivating these spiritual disciplines? These are questions you can ask yourself. To see how you're doing. Because the truth is, if you're going to be a victorious athlete in God's race, we're running a race, then you need to train. I'm not going to run a marathon today, I can assure you. I can walk one, but I can't run one. And there's a reason. I have to work up to it. There's a training that takes place. So Paul uses this to encourage Timothy that you need to be prepared. Maybe that's a good way to say it. We need to be prepared for what God has called us to do. And then in verse 6, Paul gives his last metaphor of this hardworking farmer. And I know a little bit about this because I grew up on a farm in Indiana. But farm work is hard work. It just is. I can remember my grandfather putting uh, tomato plants in the ground and he just used to, he'd till the ground and then he'd have like a metal spike and He'd uh, drive it in and just make a big uh, circle in the ground. And we're all down like this, dropping tomato plants in, just in a squat position all along. And it's not like one or two tomato plants. It's out in the hot sun. 
It's hard work. But here's the wonderful thing about it. It says that this farmer, the hardworking farmer, should be the first to receive a a share of the crops. He gets the first fruits in some ways. And it's such a blessing. Paul's telling us to reflect on these metaphors. Do you know, uh, one of the things I love to see is when a person encounters, maybe you're out sharing your faith. And God brings someone across your path. You share your faith. The person becomes a Christian. You get to mentor that Christian. And that Christian uh, says, hey, I want to get baptized. And they invite you to be part of the baptism. What What a a first fruit to share. And this happened to me. I met a young man named Will at Starbucks in Glen Cove many years ago. And he was into all kinds of things. I mean, he went from, I mean, he was a vampire one minute. (laughs) He'd really gotten into Satanism at a certain point. And when I encountered him, he had all kinds of personality situations going on. But at a certain point, he gave his life to Christ. And I got to see him start to grow. He turned his back on all this stuff. He was into Wiccan stuff and vampire stuff and uh, Satanism, the whole nine. He turned his back on it and turned to Christ. And at a certain point, I got to baptize him in the, the Long Island Sound. I mean, it was... A beautiful thing to experience, to be able to see him go from darkness to light, to see him grow over time. And he's still growing. He, from, he, he lives in another state now, and he texts me from time to time or calls me. And we talk about these things. But I want you to think about this. Paul is calling each one of us to be like hardworking farmers. And the great thing, the gratifying thing is, is you will be able to partake in the first. What a reward this is. And we should should be reflecting on all these things, but our main focus should not just be the word of God that Paul's proclaiming here, but the God of the word. That is Jesus. And this is the fifth imperative. It says, keep your attention on Jesus. Now, if you've been reading from the NIV, you'll notice I switched out the phrase. Maybe some of you pulled out a Bible. And the reason is the Greek phrase is best translated, keep your attention on Jesus. I mean, I pulled that from the CSB, which I think is just right on this. But Paul's fifth imperative instructs Timothy to keep his focus on Jesus. This is a huge deal. Jesus is the center of the gospel of the message. Jesus is the center of our theology. Jesus is the center of our faith. It's Jesus. If you don't get the Jesus part right, you don't have much. I mean, we should ask the question, how am I preserving the truths of Christianity, of Jesus, that is, in my life and in the life of my family? How are you doing that? I mean, are you intentional about it? Because if you're not, trust me, erosion will occur. We live in a society that will quickly erode these things. You have to be intentional about preserving your faith, and your faith is built around Jesus. Now, Paul follows this imperative with a theological teaching, but he doesn't just uh, uh, spout off information. He does this by reciting an early Christian creed or hymn, probably something that was sang at a baptism. And the way that you know it, do you remember when we were reading the passage that you saw those little indentations in, in some of the verses? Well, that is just kind of like when you read poetry, it's structured this way. This was probably a hymn or a creed. And why would he do that? Well, there's something about taking information and putting it to music or making it rhyme that moves it from the head to the heart. You see, as Christians, we want our head and our heart connected. It's not an either-or proposition. 
We should know the information, but we need to become intimately acquainted with it until it brings out worship in us. So he's quoting something that most of the people that would have been reading this or hearing this read would know this song, would know this creed. And uh, it begins in verse 11. It says, uh, you know, this trustworthy saying. And, this trust, and he declares this. He says, basically, that if we die with Jesus, we will live with Jesus. If we remain with Jesus, we will reign with Jesus. Uh, if we deny him, he will deny us. And what does that mean? It means with a sin with a high hand. It's not the thing that we're, 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 you know, we're having moments of doubt. This is the kind of person who says, I know all this, and I don't want to have anything to do with Jesus. That's a different kind of thing. It's the, in the Old Testament, we call it sin with the high hand. But notice this. But even if we are faithless, he will remain faithful because he will not deny himself. Think about this. If my salvation depended on me being completely faithful, I'd be in a mess. Jesus died for us while we were still sinners, unbelievers. But once we become believers, do we just, is our trajectory just straight like this? Actually, it's more like this. Thank God is usually an upward trend, but there are ups and downs. Jesus remains faithful even when we are faithless. And the reason is he won't deny himself. His holy name. Jesus is about keeping his holy promises and his purposes. He's not going to leave or forsake us. In the book of Hebrews, it says in Greek, I will not never, no, not never leave you or forsake you. Five negatives to drive home a point. The God we serve in Jesus Christ is a God who will never leave or forsake his people. He's faithful to his name. It's not just about us. It's about him. He's going to remain faithful. He is committed to his promise, to his purposes. He will not deny himself. And although Paul was about to be martyred, he knew that he would be raised and reign with Christ forever because he knew his Savior was faithful and would remain faithful even when his people were sometimes faithless. Jesus is committed to his holy purposes and his people, and he is committed to you and to me. See, Paul might have been in chains, friends, but the gospel was not. It spread like wildfire. Nothing could stop it. Not governments. The Roman Empire couldn't do it. The former Soviet Union couldn't do it. North Korea can't do it, and neither can China. China actually has the biggest church in the world, mostly underground. Governments can't do it. Nor could philosophies. I mean secular humanism, atheism, and every other ism you can name. They've all tried their hand at it, but the gospel continues to spread. Where there's persecution and people are killed, the blood of martyrs is like fertilizer for the seed of God's word. It just grows all the more. False religions weren't able to do it. Proto-Gnosticism, Gnosticism, uh, the false religions in Paul's days. False religion was going on in this, when Paul writes to Timothy. New Age movement, Islam, Eastern religions have all failed to eliminate the gospel. The gospel cannot be bound, chained, or imprisoned. And by the way, if you don't know this, 
The reason that we have orphanages, the reason that we have hospitals, the reason that we have universities, the reason that we have suffrage, the reason that we had abolition of slavery was not because the world was so good. It was because of Christianity. People would, Romans would sit there, uh, if a baby had any kind of defect or didn't look right, they'd leave it out for exposure. It was Christians that came along and took these children and started the first orphanages. When the Black Plague hit Europe and people were running out of cities, it was Christians who were running in into cities to, to care for the sick. They preserved uh, uh, academic works and created the first universities, hospitals, orphanages, universities. And when it came to slavery, it was the, it were, even though religion has been misused sometimes by people for slavery, it was actually Christians who undid slavery. William Wilberforce and so many of the others, they drove slavery out of the Western world for the most part, ended the slave trade. And women's rights, suffrages, this, this, suffrage, it came through Christian organizations. So we have nothing to be ashamed about as Christians. We should be uh, giving praise to God because Christianity, I'm talking about real Christianity, has changed the world, turned the world right side up for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. So it can't be bound, this good news. (laughs) And we need to, so with all this in mind, knowing that it can't be bound or imprisoned, we need to be strong in the grace of Jesus and entrust this good news to reliable people. And let us be willing to suffer for the good news and reflect on what we've been taught. Above all, let us keep our attention on Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Amen. Now, this Jesus who died for us, who gave his body for us, who shed his blood for us, He's the one we want to focus on now. And now we're going to take a moment and transition to our time of communion. And if I can ask the elders to come forward.